Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. In the spotlight, a woman who has spent her entire career in just about every aspect of media, as a print and a broadcast journalist, as a media relations pro, and also as a college professor. She grew up in Oklahoma in segregation. She loved to write and wanted to be a journalist, but there just weren't many people of color, male or female, for her to look up to. But as you will hear in this interview, she put her head down, she persevered, and she succeeded. Her name is Carmen Fields, and this is her story. Carmen, welcome to the show. Let's begin with this. What made you want to be a journalist? The simple answer is sibling rivalry. I come from a musical family. My dad had a big band from the late 1920s through the 60s. My brother was a child prodigy, my older brother. Everything he touched turned to music. And I was going through the paces, having piano lessons and this lesson and the school orchestra, but I was so bewildered about being compared to my brother or certain expectations that I would be gifted to by the teachers and professors. And I purposefully wanted to find something different that I wouldn't be compared with. I was good in English and writing, and I took it from there. But an English teacher had a unit on journalism in the seventh grade, and I loved it. And we could write for the school paper. We could write and send our articles to the local weekly black newspaper and see the byline. And it was no turning back from there. How did it feel the first time you ever had something published that you wrote? Amazing, proud, the cat's meow. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, uh, I so. always love to ask that question only because I've interviewed so many authors and I always ask them, what's it like to hold that book in your hand or a singer? What's it like to hear that song on the radio? That's where that came from. Where did you go to school? Tell us a little bit about that. I'm a native of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which has been a little bit in the news recently. I was born there, grew up there, went through high school in what was segregated schools in that time, Ralph J. Bunch Elementary School, Marion Anderson Junior High School, Booker T. Washington High School. <laughs> Although segregation is frowned upon now, I think we had the best of all worlds because it was like a cocoon, and everything that we needed was right there in our community, whether it was at grocery stores, pharmacists, doctors, restaurants, cafes, the whole thing was there. It was a very insular community where your neighbor or even a stranger, if they saw you misbehaving, they were privileged, had the right to come and correct you. You belonged to the neighborhood. <laughs> you belonged to the entire community. They talk about it takes a village. Well, that village was there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, believe it or not. Walk me through what it was like to be part of your family. What was the vibe like in your house? What was the message for you and your siblings? One of hard work, one of responsibility. My mother was a teacher. My father, as I mentioned, was a big band leader, and he traveled a lot. And I had chores and was expected on Saturday morning when you got up, ironing, laundry, 
hang the clothes on the clothesline, sweep the front porch and patio, clean the bathroom. I could not get a ride to school in the morning with my mother if I hadn't made my bed. So your father was a big band leader. Tell me about that. A big band leader by the name of Ernie Fields. He had his orchestra. He traveled in a big bus that had Ernie Fields and his world-famous orchestra written on the side. He was a contemporary of Duke, Count, and those of that era. And he had a relatively successful life as what they call now a territory band that was not as famous as Count or Duke, but was well-respected because it was kind of a training ground for other musicians that went on to become mainstays in the Ray Charles Orchestra in Duke Ellington and traveled all over the world. When you were growing up, did you have an understanding or a sense that your dad was a big deal? I did, but I was embarrassed, I'm ashamed to say, because people would come through and the guys would get to telling stories and they'd sit at the piano in our living room and they'd start these jam sessions. And I'm thinking, what are the neighbors thinking? (laughs) But now I realize the importance and I'm glad that I got a chance to quiz my daddy and record him talking about the good old days. And I'm turning that into a memoir, a narrative nonfiction that tells his story and the contributions of other unknown musicians who should be recognized for their part as well. I like to think that I'm securing my father's place in history, no matter how small it may be. When you were growing up, who were your role models, Carmen? Many of my teachers, particularly my first teacher who introduced me to journalism, Juanita Lewis Hopkins. Leaving Tulsa, Oklahoma to go to school, or did you stick around? Uh, I went to college at a liberal arts college in Jefferson City, Missouri, called Lincoln University, a historically black college and university. And at the time, back in the older days, that was the only historically black college that had a degree program in journalism. Because by this time, I was completely sold. I had the privilege of the editor, a columnist for the black newspaper. She had a column called Scoop in the Scoop. And my senior year in high school, she invited me to be a guest columnist. You talk about that first byline. Well, the byline when you're a columnist. Oh, excuse me. My goodness. (laughs) But I got a scholarship and uh, went to Lincoln University and uh, pursued journalism. Print journalism was the only option then. But My senior year, I had an internship at the local television station, KRCG-TV in Jefferson City, Missouri, a CBS affiliate. And that opened a whole new world of journalism to me. It also was pre-union. So reporters, I had my own little silent camera. So I took my own film in a pinch. I processed it. I edited it and then delivered the voiceover on the air. How exciting. An amazing experience. And that made me start thinking about, hmm, maybe broadcast journalism. At that time, no women, no people of color, or very few. I remember Pauline Frederick, 
who covered the UN and was a correspondent for one of the networks. That was the only woman that came to mind during that time. So I knew I wanted to go to grad school, applied to all over the place and was accepted at Boston University. And my mother, bless her heart, I asked her advice. I said, you know, I'm accepted at places that are closer to home. I'm accepted at places in Missouri. What do you think I should do? And she says, well, you've never been east before. Why don't you go ahead to Boston? And just remember, you can always come home if it doesn't work out. So I came to Boston to study broadcast journalism, and I've been trying to raise bus fare home ever since. (laughs) (laughs) And you're still here, and you are somebody whose name is known wherever you go. I've been very fortunate. For a kid from Tulsa, Oklahoma, it's amazing when I stop and think about it. What can you share about your experience about coming of age in the United States as an African-American woman growing up in segregation and then coming to Boston? Walk us through what that was like. It was quite a learning experience. Uh, It was shocking at first for me in a couple of ways. Number one, Boston is not the friendliest place in the world. You don't typically walk down the street and nod to people and they nod back or acknowledge you. It takes a while to understand that culture. It was the first time I had the experience of being the only person of color in the class. And so it was very lonely. And that's when all of the doubts and questions about yourself come to bear because I remember for the first time in my life being afraid to ask a question. I didn't want the appearance of being ignorant and I would turn a question over in my head two or three times, the sentence structure, and how oh, will this, uh, maybe I should put it this way, and by the time I figured it out, they'd moved on to something else in the conversation of the class, but that was a very lonely feeling. But thankfully, I sought out through my sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. You may have heard of it. The vice president-elect is a member of our sisterhood. There was a chapter in Boston. I affiliated right away. And thankfully, the women, the mother figures, the grandmother figures, the aunties, the sisters, they helped me understand and be appreciated in this culture. I found a home. One of the very first jobs you had was as a press secretary to a district attorney here in Boston. Talk to us about that. The television news show that I was working for was canceled. And I had been an anchor and reporter for a number of years in broadcast and in print journalism. And uh, the district attorney was Ralph Martin at the time. And he was a friend or a pal. And I remember getting a call from him at one point, and he said he was on a short list to be nominated by the governor to be the district attorney for Suffolk County, Boston, the largest in New England. And if he gets that, would I be interested? And I said, uh, you know, offhandedly, but of course, you, you know, we're friends, I respect you. 
and never dreaming that he would actually be appointed. And sure enough, he was appointed, and he called and said, you have right of first refusal. And so I said yes. And the principles of journalism that I grew up on came into play in writing the news releases, etc. But there's a whole different set of operatives. There's First Amendment rights to a fair trial that you have to keep in mind before your freedom of the press and what you say and how you shape the message. It was quite an exciting and unexpected learning experience. You also wrote for the Boston Globe on the city desk. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Oh, that was uh, my first job out of grad school. And there's uh, a baptism right there. (laughs) It was all of the stereotypical journalists, the crusty old men with the cigars and the cigarettes and the off-color jokes and all, but God love them for whatever reason. They took me under their wing and uh, helped me learn and grow. Were there places in the city of Boston that you were afraid to go to? Yes, I was afraid to go to South Boston, like most people were. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, when I think back at what street reporters go through today, I was on the streets before crack and methamphetamine and the proliferation of guns. And I, as part of the role, you went and knocked on doors when something happened and you needed a sound bite or a quote. And I don't remember being afraid. I remember being careful, but not being fearful of knocking on somebody's door. And if they answered, they can tell you yes or no or, or what have you. But during the busing crisis, that was challenging moving around the city at that particular time. I think that we first met when you were working for the United Way of Massachusetts Bay. I've been trying to figure out, because I've known you forever and, of course, know your name in the city, but I was the liaison for the radio station for Magic 106.7, and we did a lot of fundraising on behalf Mm -hmm. of the United Way. Tell us about your role. Now we're into the 90s. Your role was as Senior Director of Communications. I came to the United Way because in the district attorney's office, I got bewildered of my best news of the day being some poor guy gets life without parole or 20 to 30 for robbery. And I knew intellectually that crime was not just all around me, but it can be overwhelming when you hear all of the bad news all the time. So I very purposefully looked for something else that was perhaps a little more uplifting and discovered the work of the United Way. You've also spent a lot of time in corporate communications at National Grid and so many other places. Was there a learning curve for you to make that step into a corporate world from having been more of a broadcast print journalist and then working in nonprofits? Not so much, because the principles of journalism, telling the story, getting the facts, making it succinct, simplifying the story, those principles still hold. My biggest challenge was convincing the members of the corporate family 
that I was now one of you. I was not Dan Rather trying to expose you and put you on 60 Minutes. So when something happened and I went to get the information from one of my colleagues and they're kind of squirming a bit, I said, wait a minute, what happened? Don't try and spin me, (laughs) okay? Just tell me what happens and then I will put together the story and you'll get a chance to see and is that accurate the way we tell this but that was the biggest challenge was internally dealing with people who were so suspicious and frightened by the power of the press. Your teaching experience is vast. At Boston University, your own alma mater for where you got your master's, at Northeastern University, at Pine Manor. What do you love most about this work? What kind of a teacher are you? Well, one of the things that the students didn't particularly care for, but I insisted on doing, was having a 10-question pop quiz of current events I expected them to read the newspaper, watch the news, local, national, international, just have a basic knowledge of who's who and what's what. And I would say to them over and over again, even if you never become a journalist, if you have this information, you'll be immensely more interesting at a cocktail party. That's awesome. (laughs) I love that be an information junkie. Let's talk a little bit about journalism now and the role of a journalist. In your opinion, what is that? I still look at journalism as the first draft of history. And I still look at journalists' role as a responsibility to give the facts and some of the context and background And yes, even get both sides of the story, even if one side seems completely ridiculous. I have not yet grown accustomed to the asides and comments that anchors make in the process of delivering the news. Sometimes it can be viewed as a slant Uh, Other times they're giving their opinions on people that were in the story, and that's not what I, as a viewer, am looking for. I'm just looking for the facts of that story. What you think about it is of no importance to me. There are no more Walter Cronkites who you could kind of take to the bank what they said, that you had the basic information of what was going on. It's very bewildering to me. Higher Ground Mm -hmm. is a monthly TV show that you host on WHDH here in Boston. You've been the host for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about the show, the mission, and what it's meant to you. Its overall theme are moral and ethical and other issues. I have sought to keep a moral tenor or tone without religiosity, if you will, and also have the ability to touch on other topics that interest me. What makes for a great interview, in your opinion? What makes for a great interview? Yeah. I guess spontaneity, not a 
party line, reparroting a party line, authenticity. Sure. Those unexpected answers to questions, yes, right? That take you yes, down a different indeed. road. That too. That's and, my favorite. And being ready for that. Yeah. We saw a lot of rioting this spring and summer. What resonated for you at that time? What was so impressive to me was the fact that police brutality was recognized as a problem around the world as a result of the George Floyd death. And at that point, it became not just my imagination or the complaint of a few, but the recognition by masses of people that this is a problem, something has to give. Do you have an opinion about Black Lives Matter? I'd be lying if I said I didn't agree with the fact that Black Lives Matter. It doesn't mean to the exception of other lives, in my opinion. It means that in addition to blue lives, white lives, whatever lives you want to name, Black lives also count. Do you think, Carmen, that there is unconscious bias And how, in your opinion, can we come together and understand that? I'm not sure. In terms of coming together, I think exposure is so important. It's just uh, coming in contact with people who are different from you and the willingness to step out of your comfort zone just a little bit. Uh, you're not talking to be best friends. I'm not looking for new best friends, okay? But I'd like to think we can sit down over a cup of coffee and share. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? Well, I'm reminded of this old DJ in uh, at Boston's WILD station, brother David A. Adams, who used to close his show with this song that had the lyrics, Lord, you don't have to move my mountains. Just give me the strength to climb. You don't have to take away my stumbling blocks. Just lead me on around. That's what I say, and that's what I believe. Just give me the strength to climb. What role has your faith played in your life? I'm just a believer that I am blessed and protected, uh, that prayers of my grandparents are holding me up now, and prayers of people whose names I don't even know are holding me up and are responsible for my success. What do you wish you knew when you first got started on your career path? I wish I knew that it's okay not to have the same job for 30 or 40 years. Be prepared to be nimble and go with the flow and uh, allow yourself to experiment. What's the best piece of advice, Carmen, that you have ever received? And it can be personal or professional. Can you pass that along to our listeners today? Well, I'll hearken back to my mother again. You can always come home. Don't ever feel like you can't come home. And 
regroup. Don't be ashamed to come home. Uh, that is where the power of restoration resides and the power of unconditional love, home. You had talked about the prayers of your ancestors and standing on their shoulders. And so my next question has to do with, I think we all reach a point in our lives where it's very important for us to pass it on. Does mentorship matter to you? What role has that played? But of course, uh, because I'm where I am today because people took an interest in me, took an interest in my career, opened doors, told me people to call and uh, check on. And whenever I get a call from a student or a young professional who's seeking guidance, seeking advice, I always make the time for them either in person or on the phone. And at the end of the conversation, I say to them, now, when you get on up there in your jobs and doing what have you, and some little kid, you don't know who they are and who their mama is, you take time, just like I took time and we talked here, you be sure to do the same thing. Never get too big to turn around and give back. Final question, Carmen Fields. Thank you so much for being on the show today. What does success mean to you? A roof over my head, uh, some food in the refrigerator and the freezer, and the love and companionship of people that I care about. Doesn't get much better than that, I don't think. Carmen, I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story today on the story behind her success. Thank you. Thank you, Candy. Words of wisdom from Carmen Fields a trailblazer for black women in broadcast media. If you know someone that I should interview, reach out anytime. Tell me about her. Candy at CandyOterry.com. And thank you so much for listening to the story behind her success. What's your story? <laughs>